Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Titus? We're starting a new series in the book of Titus this morning. This larger section of Scripture is called the Epistles, which is a fancy word for letters. Most of the letters that we have in our New Testament were written to a local church congregation, but a handful of them were written to individuals, like this one. Titus is the third of three personal letters Paul wrote to two younger pastors that he was mentoring. We commonly call these three books the pastoral epistles, and they're named for their recipients, Timothy and Titus. So we have 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Bible scholars believe that Titus was written in the early to mid-60s, and by that I don't mean the 1960s, I mean the first century A.D. This period coincides with the time between Paul's first and second Roman imprisonments. Let's stand, and I'll read our passage, and then we'll pray. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we are grateful to be here in this place today and beginning a new study. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it so easily accessible to us. And Lord, as we approach this new book and begin this new study, we ask for your help. We know that the Holy Spirit is ultimately our teacher. Father, I pray that you would anoint me by your Holy Spirit today, that I would teach your word accurately, that I would say exactly what you want to be said. I pray that we would have receptive hearts to your word, that we would be ready to receive what you have for us, that we would have ears to hear. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today we're going to study just the first four verses of this book. This is Paul's greeting to Titus. The greeting in an ancient letter usually began with the author's name, in this case, Paul. Have you ever wondered why that is? It's because letters were often written on scrolls, and you wouldn't want to have to unroll the entire scroll just to see who had written you a letter. Today we use a return address to accomplish the same thing. Titus is one of Paul's shortest letters. Only Philemon is shorter. But Titus contains one of his longest greetings. So that makes me wonder why. If it's one of the shortest letters and it has one of the longest greetings, what's the point? Well, I don't believe Paul was trying to meet his word count requirement. So why is this greeting so long? I believe, personally, that it's because Paul was excited about everything he intended to write to Titus. And because it was so important to him, some of the main ideas came out from the very beginning. And how does this long, wordy sentence fit in with the rest of the letter? Because if you were paying attention, 
in the translation I'm reading from, there's just one period. It's one big old sentence with semicolons and commas and, and all that kind of thing. And that type of punctuation was not in the original Greek. I understand that. But the way we have it, it's one long sentence. How does it fit in? What is its purpose? Well, we already said it's the greeting, so it tells us who is writing to whom. But more than that, it provides Paul's credentials and his authority. The same authority that he was delegating to Titus for the purpose of, number one, setting in order what was lacking in the churches, and number two, appointing elders in every city. You say, we didn't read that yet. That's right, it's verse five, and we're going to come to it next week. We'll talk much more about it then. I'd like to give you a little bit of background about Paul and Titus and their relationship. Surprisingly, Titus is not mentioned at all by name in the book of Acts. Most of what we know about Titus, we learn from 2 Corinthians and Galatians. Although we don't have any details, Paul may have met Titus during his first missionary journey, and he may have led him to Christ at that time and certainly discipled him. Titus then traveled with Paul on his second and third missionary journeys. Titus was heavily involved in the ministry at the church in Corinth. He's mentioned nine times in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote this letter that we're studying while Titus was in Crete. And I have a map for you there in case you're not familiar with where Crete is, but Crete is one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea. Paul first visited Crete on his voyage to Rome. You can read about that in Acts 27. And then returned there with Titus to establish and organize churches. He later left Titus there, we'll read that in verse 5, to continue what they had begun together. What else do we know about Titus? Well, from Galatians 2.3, we know that Titus was a Greek. That means he was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew. In other words, he couldn't trace his ancestry back to Abraham the way Paul could. And he was not brought up according to the ceremonial laws. In fact, at one point early on, a group called the Judaizers tried to convince Paul that Titus should be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. But Paul refused to allow Titus to be brought under that bondage. Why? Because Paul was all about sharing the message of salvation, and salvation, as he taught it, as we understand it, is by faith, not by works. We'll see it expressed very explicitly in Titus 3.5 when we get to that passage. So with that brief introduction complete, let's talk about the questions I'd like for us to ask and answer together. Question one, who wrote the book of Titus? Well, if you've been paying attention, you already know that that's Paul. To whom was it written? Well, that's not hard either. The book is named Titus. Why? Because it's written to Titus. That's why we're talking about him. But what is the book of Titus about? And that's a little bit more difficult question. I've been reading through this book for weeks in preparation to teach it, but you may not have read it recently. So you may not know what is this book about? Why is he writing to Titus? I believe if you had to narrow it down to just one word, what is the book of Titus about? If you had to answer that in one word, I would answer it as the word truth. That's our key word. There are many key words in this book, faith, truth, godliness, hope, eternal life, and so on. And I, I gave the children a bunch of key words on their handout for today, just from the first four verses. But I would narrow it all down to the one word, truth. And that brings me to the main idea, the main point for today, which I also believe is the theme of the book of Titus. And that is, truth leads 
to godliness. I'll say that again. Truth leads to godliness. That's the main idea that I'd like you to take home with you today. And that, I believe, is the theme that we're going to see throughout the book of Titus. Go back with me, please, to verse 1, and we're going to work our way through these four verses, one or two at a time. Verse 1 says, Paul, a bond servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, we have a pretty good idea who Paul is. Paul was one of the most significant people in the New Testament. He was the human author of more books of the New Testament than anyone else. He had an impressive resume. He was taught by an important rabbi, Gamaliel. We know he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. He kept the law carefully. He was devout. He was zealous. In fact, as we read in our scripture reading from Acts chapter 9, he made it his goal in life to eradicate Christianity in its early stages by persecuting believers wherever he could find them. But God had other plans for Paul. He arrested him on the road to Damascus and drafted him into the service of Jesus Christ. Now I have a question. I'd like you to think about this. How would you describe yourself? In a few words, a few phrases, how would you describe yourself? That's an important question. It might be one for you to write down and think about some more later. But here's how Paul chose to describe himself to Titus at the beginning of this letter. Again, he's writing to Titus. He's writing for the benefit of Titus, but he's also writing for the benefit of other believers in the churches on Crete because they were going to hear or read it as well. So here's how he described himself. Number one, a bondservant of God. What does he mean? Paul is describing himself first as a humble, voluntary servant of God, one who was willing to do whatever he was asked. This Greek word here can also be translated slave. That's what some of your translations have. But that word has very different associations for us today, in modern United States, looking at our history, than it did for them back then. In Bible times, many people became indentured servants because of the debts they owed. Loans and credit cards weren't common or easily available like they are now. So if you owed a debt that you couldn't pay, you became a slave, an indentured servant, until you could pay back that debt. Occasionally, a bond servant experienced a better situation in the household of his master than he had elsewhere. And after the debt was paid off, the temporarily indentured servant could choose to become the voluntary lifelong servant of his master. You can read more about that process, the way God established it for his people in Exodus 21. And that's similar to the situation Paul was describing here and also in Romans 12.1, a familiar verse for us. What is he saying? That he was God's voluntary, lifelong servant. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your, what? Reasonable service. Paul intended to serve his Lord, his master, voluntarily for the rest of his life. And that's how he chose to describe himself at the beginning of this letter. Now, there's a, another fine point to this. Paul called himself a bondservant of Christ, 
on several occasions. We can read other epistles where he referred to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. This is the only time, though, that he called himself a bondservant of God. Why? What difference does it make? Well, we can't say for sure, but Paul may be identifying himself as a messenger of the Lord who spoke for God, much like the phrase, the servant of the Lord in the Old Testament. Can you think of anybody in the Old Testament who was described as the servant of the Lord? Yes, David was described as the servant of the Lord. There's one I'm thinking of who was described as the servant of the Lord over and over and over. You, you read that phrase, I'll just tell you, it's Moses. Moses, the servant of the Lord. You read that so many times in the Old Testament, it almost seems like it's his last name, Moses, the servant of the Lord. Others who were described that way, Joshua, Daniel, the prophets as a group, and Zerubbabel were all described as the servant of the Lord or something very similar to that, the Lord's servant. Now, in addition to being a bondservant of God, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. What is an apostle? An apostle is a messenger, or literally, a sent one. There's a technical definition of this word, and then more of a general definition. The technical definition, to be an apostle, you had to be called by Jesus Christ. You had to have seen the risen Christ. And that describes the twelve, as we know in the Gospels. And because Paul later saw Christ on the road to Damascus, the bright light shone, he responded, Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? That was his encounter with Jesus Christ. So he saw the risen Christ. Not the way the others did exactly, but he did. So he was officially an apostle. But we also could use that term more generally, anyone who's sent out, commissioned by the Lord, with a message. That would be modern-day missionaries, evangelists, and frankly, every one of us. We'll get to that in a little bit. More specifically, Paul was sent by Jesus Christ to deliver the message of good news to the Gentiles. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He even says that at one point, that I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I'm going to go to them, and we'll let Peter and the others, James, continue to share the good news with the Jewish audience. Identifying himself as an apostle also gave Paul credibility and authority because he had seen the risen Christ, because he had that special commission. And we read about that, among other places, in Acts 20, 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry, here it is, which I received from the Lord Jesus, to do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So if you like alliteration, if that makes things easier to remember for you, you could say it this way. Paul was both a servant of God and a sent one from Jesus Christ. A servant and a sent one. Why? According to, or some of your translations say, for the sake of, or to further, what? The faith of God's elect. To build up the faith of God's elect. Why is he a bondservant of God? Why is he an apostle of Jesus Christ in order to further the faith of God's elect. And who is that? Those who believe in Christ. How's he going to do it? How does Paul propose to build up the faith of believers? 
And the answer to that is, with the truth which accords with godliness. Other translations have that as the truth which accords leads to. Let's get rid of that word accords for a second. The truth which leads to godliness. Now, as we begin to see today, and as we'll see much more in weeks to come, truth is a major theme of the book of Titus. And this statement implies that there's a connection between truth and godliness. Somehow they're related. Somehow there's a link between truth and godliness. So what's the connection? Well, one author put it this way. Truth compels godliness. Truth leads us to godliness. It brings us to godliness. It gives us a motive inside toward godliness. It motivates us toward godliness. Now, what is truth? God's word is truth. We know that from John 17, 17. And when his word resides in our hearts, spiritual change takes place over time to make us more like Jesus. We call that ongoing process sanctification. So there's a sense in which, right out of the gate here, he said so few words, really, just a couple of verses, one verse, we're still in the first verse, Paul has already been talking about the elect, that's salvation, and now the word of truth that brings us to godliness. So, sanctification. Now that faith and truth that work together, once we are saved, the truth leads us to godliness, it should change us. Vernon McGee said, if the truth that you have does not lead to a godly life, there is something radically wrong with your faith. And I agree with that statement. That brings us to the end of verse 1. So let's review the main idea for today, which we're also calling the theme of the book of Titus. That is, truth leads to godliness. There it is at the end of verse 1. We just talked about it. Truth leads to godliness. Next, Paul describes our hope. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now that word hope. This meaning of hope isn't just a dream. It's not just a wish, as in, I hope it doesn't rain later. Or, I hope Bob finishes talking soon. Hope, in this case, is a confident expectation. It is a certainty. What is that hope in or of? It is eternal life. Eternal life, everlasting life. Life that has no end. If we are believers in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, our eternal life has already begun and it will never end. Perhaps the most famous verse in the world is John 3.16. And there it says, For God so loved the world, He loved the world so much, that He gave something. He gave a person, His only Son, His only begotten Son. Why? That whoever believes in Him, His Son, Jesus, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Would not have eternal death and separation from God, but instead would have Everlasting life. There it is. And do you know how Jesus defined eternal life? Everlasting life. I'm using these interchangeably. 
he defined it as having a relationship with God through him. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, referring to God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, how can we be so confident about this? If he is talking about a confident expectation, a hope, this hope of eternal life, how can he be so sure? Because God cannot lie. As we'll see later in this first chapter, lying was ingrained into the culture of Crete. But Hebrews 6.18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. John 14.6 says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because Jesus is the truth, he can only ever tell the truth. John Phillips said, the trustworthiness of God is the security of our hope. How can we be confident? Because God cannot lie. And this God who cannot lie made a promise a long time ago. That's the next statement. God promised eternal life when? Before time began. Now, I did an interesting word study this week. I often use Blue Letter Bible or Bible Gateway and do phrase or word searches. It's very easy to do. You can do this. You could even Google this in many cases. But I looked for the phrase, the foundation of the world. Because Revelation 17, 8 says that there are names that are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. What that means is that there are some names that have been written in the book of life since the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 is another one. It says, just as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. What do these statements mean? They mean that God had planned salvation, his gift of eternal life, even before he created the world. So God's plan for salvation wasn't his reaction to sin. It wasn't, oh no, Adam and Eve sinned, now I have to do something. This wasn't plan B. This was plan A. And how did God choose to communicate this vitally important information to us? This truth about eternal life that compels us to godliness and gives us hope, confident expectation. How did he tell us about it? Next statement. God has manifested his word through preaching. Please get this. What is God's primary means of sharing his word with the world? And I believe the answer here and in other places in the scriptures are that believers proclaim it to other people. That's the method. That's the plan. This word manifested means to make visible, to make clear. And that's my prayer. That's my goal. Anytime I get up to share the word of God with you is to make it clear, to expose the truth. This Greek word for preaching emphasizes the message, the content, rather than the activity itself. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's not so much about getting up in front of a group of people to preach or teach the word of God. It's Individual conversations as well. Anytime we are telling others the good news of the gospel, in that sense, we're preaching. Paul shared some similar thoughts elsewhere. Romans 10, 13, and 14. 13 is one that we quote often around here. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on God's name, believe on him for salvation, you're saved. 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, that's a good question. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? That's a good question too. And how shall they hear without a preacher? 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. To the really smart, erudite, brainiacs in the Greek culture, the preaching of the cross that Paul was delivering seemed foolishness. Just a bunch of foolishness. That God would raise someone from the dead. That's foolishness. No, Paul said it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. How's he getting his message out? Through preaching. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to study the hardest I can. I'm going to deliver it the best I can. But at the end of the day, it may seem like foolishness, but it's what he's chosen. Because he has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the mighty. Now, why did Paul preach? It says, according to the commandment. Paul felt compelled, obligated to preach the gospel. Why? Because God had commanded him to do it. 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. I can't brag about it. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. It's not that I'm so special. It's that he said to go do it, and I'm obeying. Does that describe us? God told me to do it. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey. And did you notice who commanded Paul to preach? God, our Savior. Please pay attention to that word Savior. If you are in the habit of marking your Bible, you may want to circle or underline or put a box around, highlight the word Savior. We're going to see it a lot in this book. Paul describes God the Father as Savior or Jesus Christ as Savior six times. We have it as three chapters. It's a short book. I believe there are 46 verses in Titus. Six times we see the word Savior. The first time is right here. Chapter 1, verse 3. God, our Savior. The next one is the next verse. Chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Chapter 2, verse 10. God, our Savior. Chapter 2, verse 13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 4. God, our Savior. Chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus Christ, our Savior. That brings us to verse 4, and now we finally get to the recipient of this book. There it says, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Titus, as I said earlier, was an associate of Paul, not mentioned in Acts, but found elsewhere in the New Testament. He's mentioned several times, I believe we said nine times in 2 Corinthians, twice in Galatians, and once in 2 Timothy. In 2 Corinthians, Paul described him First, as Titus, my brother, and later as my partner and fellow worker. So he obviously believed that Titus was useful. He was a good worker. He was a partner in ministry, and he describes him as my brother, a, a familial relationship. And now in the letter written to Titus, Paul calls him a true son in our common faith. This word for son could also be translated child because it's a term of endearment. It's something that you would say nice and uh, almost like a nickname, perhaps. Somebody in your family, you, you have different names that perhaps other people outside the family don't use. Paul used this word also for Timothy in 1 Timothy 1-2 and Onesimus in Philemon 10. 
a true son in our common faith. Do you remember back to elementary school math class? I don't mean to bring up any painful memories, but in elementary school math class, you learned fractions, and you had to find the lowest common denominator. Right. Lowest common denominator. As followers of Jesus Christ, at the most basic level, we have a common faith in him. Paul and Titus had this in common, the same faith, the faith we were talking about earlier, the faith in Christ. And we may have minor areas of disagreement with many people around the world in, in different churches or denominations or whatever, but we have one faith. What we have in common, what unites us, is a belief in Jesus Christ alone as Savior. He came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross to save us from our sins, he rose three days later, he ascended to his Father, and he's coming back. That unites us, that's our common faith. Some more familiar verses, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. These ideas of grace and faith are found throughout Paul's writings. We're going to see them again here in just a minute at the end of verse 4. But this statement, a true son in our common faith, may also mean that Titus was Paul's spiritual son. That is, that Paul had led him to Christ. We don't know that. That's not spelled out in Scripture. But that may be the case. He certainly led Timothy to Christ. He may have led Titus to Christ. He definitely was mentoring, discipling Titus. That's part of the purpose of this book. So at the end of verse 4, we have a traditional greeting. It's similar to the ones that appear in Paul's other letters. There we read, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. What does the word grace mean? It means gift. As a young boy, the definition I learned in school was that grace is God's kindness to us when we deserve punishment. Grace describes God's gift of salvation, which, as we've already said, we don't deserve. Then there's a second word in this greeting, mercy. And some of you don't have the word mercy in your translation because that Greek word doesn't appear in some manuscripts. But mercy does appear later in chapter 3. So I'm going to take advantage of this moment to remind us of what mercy is. What is mercy? Mercy is God's faithful, loyal love to us. If grace is God's giving us what we don't deserve, mercy is God's not giving us what we do deserve. And what is it that we deserve? We deserve punishment. We deserve eternal separation from God because of our sin. Romans 6, 23 puts it this way. For the wages of sin is death, meaning separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life, talked about that earlier, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sin deserves death. It deserves eternal separation from God. But by believing in Christ as Savior, we receive pardon. And that's mercy. Why would God do that? Why would he extend mercy to us? Because God is generous and kind to grant us the forgiveness that we don't deserve. And what is that? That's grace. The two terms are closely related and they work together. But then there's a third one, and that's peace. There's a lot we could say about peace, but 
For those of you who were there just a few weeks ago on Christmas Eve, I preached an entire sermon on the peace of God, the peace we have with God by faith in Jesus Christ, and then the peace of God that we experience in the ups and downs, the daily life that we live. As we think on Him, as we trust in Him, we experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. Why is that? Because of the grace that we've already received. Do you see it there? Grace comes before peace. If you do a word study on that, I don't think you'll find anywhere in the New Testament where they're listed together as a greeting where peace comes before grace. Grace always comes before peace. The peace we have with God, the peace of God in our daily lives exists because of the grace we've already received. And this grace and peace come to us from two equal sources, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Usually when we see just the word God, Old Testament or New Testament, if the G is capitalized, we're usually talking about God the Father. And here he spells out God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that's, did you see, we have the word Savior again. Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name. Human name. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. Christ, his title. Messiah, King, Anointed One, Promised One. And who is he? He's the Savior. He's the rescuer from sin. And because earlier, Paul said that God is our Savior, and here he says Jesus Christ is our Savior, we also have, perhaps subtly stated there, that Jesus is God. Now, where does that leave us? We've covered the greeting. This long sentence, this rambly run-on sentence, might not do well in your grammar class at school. But it's inspired. And it serves a purpose. So Paul is establishing that he's writing to Titus. He's establishing his authority, which Titus is going to need in order to do what he's left in there to do. And within that, he is giving us hints, foreshadowing what he's going to talk about in the letter. And what's he going to talk about? That truth leads to godliness. Here's my uninspired paraphrase of what's going on here. From a starting point of faith, truth leads to godliness by grace. That's what's going on in Titus, and that's what's going on in these first verses. So just a couple of questions as I close. Do you believe the gospel? There could be somebody here in this room. There could be somebody watching, listening online that you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. You know that you are still weighed down by your sin and you've never gotten forgiveness for it. You can put your faith in Him. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior. You can receive the gift of His forgiveness that we've been talking about, forgiveness for sin, the free gift of His mercy and His grace. How? By crying out to Him, by praying to Him. By saying, God, I know I've sinned. I know I've broken your law, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you save me from my sin? He'll do it. Pray that in faith, and you are saved. You're His child. Believers, is truth leading to godliness in your life? 
I didn't ask whether you're perfect. None of us is perfect. But is your interaction with and your application of the truth of the gospel changing your life a little bit at a time to become more like Jesus? That's what should be happening. If we are God's children, we should be growing. We expect a baby to grow. If there's no growth taking place, there's a problem there. Well, spiritually speaking, if there's not growth taking place, there may not be life there. If you're a believer, you should be growing. We call that process sanctification. We'll get to talk about it more as we continue in the book of Titus. But that's the question. Is truth leading to godliness in your life? And then, one more, are you preaching his word? Are you sharing the good news with others? Because he's commanded us to do so. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the simplicity of it. That even a child can understand the good news about Jesus. Lord, may your word, may that truth change us. May it take root in our hearts and grow and grow us. I pray that we would grow as a church body and that we would grow individually to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, that we would bring him glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.